and team for leading us in worship this morning. Well, good morning, South. It's good to see you this morning. Um, I'm really excited to be up here and, and sharing the, the scriptures with you this morning. And uh, yeah, I, I'm my, if, you, if you don't know me, my name is Aaron Bjorklund. I'm the, I'm the creative arts pastor. And essentially what that means is usually I'm up here singing with you and, and, and joining you in, in leading singing. And, but today I have the privilege of bringing the scriptures, and I'm really excited about that. And if you haven't been here over the past three weeks, we've started a series through the book, the Gospel of Mark, entitled, And Then What Happened? And I love this title for the, the Gospel of Mark, because it sort of encapsulates how the Gospel of Mark feels when you read it. See, the Gospel of Mark is sort of the highest pace, highest energy kind of gospel that we have of the, of the account of Jesus' life. And so Mark is, is so excited to, to share with us what it looks like for the kingdom of God to unfold in time and space, and he's just like riled up. And so he curates all these stories about what it looks like for the kingdom to unfold and he says, and, and, then, and then this happened, and then immediately this thing happened, and then this thing over here happened, and then, and then this happened, and the natural question for us is, all right, Mark, okay, we get it, and then what happened? And so I love this title for the Gospel of Mark, and Mar, um, Pastor Larry shared with us in week one that we're going to be looking at the Gospel uh, to try and find uh, and, and find where, how, what it looks like for the kingdom of God to unfold in time and space. And we're going to be looking at it through these lenses, because this is what Mark's really trying to accomplish. Mark is trying to teach us who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and and this one's really important for Mark, what Jesus does. He's all about showing us, not that Jesus just talks the talk, but that Jesus walks the walk. And then ultimately, in this gospel, what does Jesus invite us into? And so we pick up the the story and. Mark chapter 3 today, and so if you go ahead and if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along or open your Bible app or whatever and get to Mark chapter 3. We'll be diving in there. We'll look back at chapter 2 briefly to get some context, but we'll, we'll, we'll jump in there in, in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd just like to pray. Father God, I thank you so much for um, the gift of your word. I thank you that you... Um, that you were so concerned with leaving your church uh, with directions on how we are to engage the situations of life that you gave us not only the revelation of your scriptures but Jesus that you came you came in flesh and blood to show us what it looks like to, to inaugurate a kingdom to restore creation to restore humanity. Lord, would you open our eyes as we look at your scriptures this morning, and would you teach us exactly what you want us to, to learn so that we can become a little bit more like you, Jesus, because that's what this world needs. It doesn't need more words. It doesn't need so many of the other things that concern us. It needs us to look a little bit more like you. That's my desire, Lord. Would you make that happen? Would you take your word and press it into our hearts, we pray in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. So I have this, um, I have this insatiable appetite to understand how things work <laughs> and why things work. And frankly, just how and why and what and all those questions, right? 
I've always been this way. I have these distinct memories as a child of being in the backseat of my parents' car and shouting questions up to my dad, like everywhere we went. Dad, why, there's smoke coming out of that airplane. Is it, is it on fire? Or dad, 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 if, if we were to be in a car and we were in a race with Johnny and his dad, which car would be faster? And dad, why is some car shaped this way and some car shaped that way? And dad, would you rather be famous, really, really famous, or really, really rich? And I just, I'm sure I drove my parents absolutely crazy with all of these questions, just constant questions. And most of the time he, he would just say, well, it depends, son, it depends, it depends, it depends, it depends. Um, but the thing is, I haven't grown out of this insatiable appetite to understand how things work and ask questions, and now I just drive my wife crazy. <laughs> and and I, I drive Larry crazy with all of my questions of why, and I love to understand what's going on and, and why. And, you know, little things like, hey, should we go to the mountains this, this weekend? And I'm like, well, why? Why would we do that? Why? What would be the under... And my wife's like, oh my goodness. Can we just go to the mountains? Like, do we have to like cultivate all of the reasons why for everything that we do? But I honestly, one of the things that, that this insatiable appetite to understand how things work and why and know exactly what's going on in every situation has, has presented some interesting challenges when it came to my faith. Because the fact of the matter is this book, this scriptures that we have, if they're intended to give us answers on what to think and how to think about, or what to think about every situation in life, this book is way too short. Am I wrong? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have yet to find a verse or a chapter in the Bible that talks about how much TV my kids should watch in a given week. <laughs> I, I've never discovered the chapter or verse that gives me all of the answers to every single situation that I have questions about. And that's that's been a challenge for my faith. Am I the only one here? And so, this week as I was preparing, I had this great idea. I think, I think that we should all get together and have a prayer meeting and we should petition God to release a Bible app. His own Bible app. And the thing that's really cool about the Bible app is he could release progressive updates so that we could apply we could ask questions of heaven, and then he could release a progressive update, and, and we could have answers to questions like, who should we vote for? <laughs> or should I, should I homeschool, or should I not homeschool? Or, or should I, maybe if you're a student, uh, you're about to graduate, and you're thinking, uh, should I go to this school, or should I go to this school? And I just, I don't need a whole chapter. I don't need a whole book of the Bible, but can I just have one verse that helped me tie... Uh, get a tiebreaker between those two schools. Or maybe, um, I think we should get an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the subject of marriage, or dedicated to the subject of parenting, or dedicated to the, the subject of singleness, and how, do I, how does someone who's single navigate this world in a healthy way and wrestle with all of the, the loneliness involved in that, and should they date this person or this person, or is there some future person that they're supposed to be involved with, and online dating and all these, I mean, just on and on and on. Let me, this book is way too short. Am I wrong? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but I just feel like the scriptures don't say a whole lot. Why don't the scriptures say enough about enough? And this is something that I've always wrestled with because I really want to do things right. I really want to, 
I really want to approach my life as a follower of Jesus and not screw it up. I, I want to know what to do in various circumstances. And this has been a battle for me. Today we're going to look at several snapshots out of the life of Jesus that gives us a framework or a set of lenses that enable us to wrestle with the circumstances and the questions of life. Um, I think it'll be really helpful, really helpful when we approach situations where we just don't have answers. And the scriptures are, they may speak to them, but oh my goodness, I wish they said more about it. And so um, we're going to explore that in the book of Mark chapter 3. But before we dive in to Mark 3, I, I just want to give you the answer right up front. Why is it that the scriptures don't say enough about enough? And here it is. Jesus is more concerned with how we think than he is with what we think. In other words, he's not trying to give you an answer to what to think about everything. He's trying to teach us how to think about everything. So what to think about everything is a little bit like living your life or someone riding a bicycle with training wheels. That's a what to think about everything mentality. You know, yeah, there's less margin for error, but it's not really riding a bike, is it? How to think mentality is a lot more like taking those training wheels off and yes, there's a greater potential that you're going to crash and you're going to skin your knee and there's no guardrails involved in that. But it's actually what riding a bike is all about. Or maybe you've heard that old phrase, teach or give a man a fish and feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. The scriptures are way more concerned with giving us frameworks for how to think about the circumstances and the situations of life than they are in giving us an answer to every situation. And when we get that right, the scriptures actually come alive in a more powerful and beautiful way. So, fortunately for... Oh, by the way, no one wants to be that guy. <laughs> right? You know, following the way of Jesus is about growing in maturity, right? It's about learning to live life as human beings with the training wheels off. And this is what it looks like if uh, you live your whole life not quite learning the lessons that the scriptures are trying to teach us. So why don't you, uh, if you already have your Bibles, uh, we're going to actually back up into chapter 2 just to get a little bit of context, and um, it'll help us dive into chapter 3 a little bit better. By the way, um, chapter breaks in the Bible are not inspired, so... Uh, this happens some, from time to time, and I think that what Mark is doing here is he's actually tying the threads between chapter 2 and chapter 3, and so hopefully this gives you some context. Chapter 2, um, there's a story right at the end of chapter 2 where Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields, and they're sort of plucking these the heads of grain, and they're eating them, and it happens to be the Sabbath. And the religious leaders approach Jesus and they say, why, why are you letting your disciples do this? I mean, he's a rabbi, and uh, in those days, in, in that particular religious system, uh, the, the rules basically said you, you can't harvest on Sabbath. Sabbath was sacred. Sabbath, Sabbath is holy, and one of the rules is to keep it holy is you can't harvest. And so they ask Jesus, what's the deal? 
your religious leader, you're letting your own followers break the Sabbath. And uh, then Jesus kind of tells this fun little story about David and how David broke the rules and God never called him out on it. And um, we don't have time to get into all of that. But then Jesus says something that's really, really significant in verse 27 of chapter 2. If you read this with me. And he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, that's a, we don't necessarily catch how huge that statement is for, for, for uh, Jesus' hearers, for the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, but it's a pretty significant statement. Now, Mark, one of the things he does all throughout his gospel, if you're, if you're following along and you're reading through the book of Mark with us throughout this series, um, I'd encourage you to look for this. One of the things Mark loves to do is he loves to tell us one story about Jesus where Jesus sets up an idea, a principle of the kingdom of God, and then immediately follow that with another story that illustrates how that idea plays out in real life. And I love Mark for that because otherwise we could get, spend our whole lives just up in our heads just understanding principles and never actually getting them into life. And so I think that that's exactly what's going on here. Right here in verse 27, this is the principle of the Sabbath that Jesus is teaching. The Sabbath was given as a gift to man. God did not create humanity so that they could, so that, because he needed them to rest one day a week. I, does that make sense? But then he illustrates it in chapter 3. Look at this. Again, Jesus, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, come up here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to slay, save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So picture the scene. Picture the scene. Jesus enters into the synagogue, and Mark wants us to connect chapter 2 there, this principle, this theological idea about the Sabbath, that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then, he, and then immediately he, he walks into the scene, and they've set up this sting, Right? The room is full, and there's little there's spies deposited around for, throughout the room, and they see this guy with the withered hand, and they're trying to figure out, what's Jesus going to do with this guy? Because another rule on the Sabbath is you're not allowed to administer um, medical aid on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that unless it's um, to prevent the loss of life. You know, and then you can do a little bit of stuff here and there, but there, this is just a guy with a withered hand. There's no potential loss of life going on here and so they're waiting to see what he's going to do with this man and Jesus rather than playing it safe I mean he knows what's going on rather than playing it safe he says and check this out he says come here he actually brings the man right up front front and center right in the middle of the room and then he asks them this loaded question 
he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And if we don't feel the tension in the room at this point in the story, it's because we don't understand how significant the Sabbath was to the Jewish people. The Sabbath was a big deal. The Sabbath was a huge deal. Maybe, arguably, one of the most significant commands that God had given the Jewish people to identify them as separate, as different than the other peoples of the world. In, in Exodus 31, 13, he says this. God says this to his people, the Jewish people, above all, above all. That's a pretty significant statement. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, have sanctified you. Sabbath was huge. And the principles of Sabbath are just all over the Old Testament because God set this as a marker of holiness, as significance, to say, these are my people. And the reason they're my people, the, one of the, the markers that make this people different from all the other people is that they practice this, this rebellion against the systems of the world. And that's what Sabbath's about. Sabbath is actually a rebellion against the economic structures of the world. It says, the world's going to keep spinning, and I'm not going to work. Sabbath is a rebellion against the chaos and the decay of the world. It's, it says every single day we rise up and we, we, we fight this chaos against dirty kitchens and dirty laundry and we fight this chaos against the email inbox and we fight this, this battle in our souls against the keeping up with the Joneses. And Sabbath was this marker that my people are going to, they're not going to play along. They're not going to play with, along with the games. And so... The religious leaders aren't wrong. Sabbath was a big deal. So what's Jesus going to do? But the thing that they missed, the thing that they didn't notice in this interaction is there's a man standing in the middle of the room with a withered hand. And one of the other things that made the Jewish people different is the fact that things like Sabbath we're supposed to be caring for people. Remember, Sabbath was made for humanity. God did not make humanity for Sabbath. But they were so obsessed with keeping the rules and not making mistakes and trying to get it right that they couldn't see there was a man in the middle of the room with a withered hand. And the person, the God who could heal, was there. There's this strange tension going on, and Mark's, maybe it was easier for Mark's original readers to see this, but Jesus asked them this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And then look what happens in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy, many translations say kill, him. So even though they're silent, their actions speak louder than words. And Jesus' question isn't that difficult, to be honest. It really isn't. Right there, smack dab in the middle of the Jewish law, thou shalt not kill. 
We've all seen it, Ten Commandments. That's seven days a week. That's not a Sabbath thing. That's a seven-day-of-the-week command. Thou shalt not kill. So Jesus is throwing them a lob, you know, a softball here, but because they're so committed, Sabbath is the thing. Sabbath, Sabbath is the thing that we need to preserve, that they're blind to the person and they're blind to the reality that this is a pretty easy question. And they want to trap him. They desperately want to trap him. Let me tell you, Jesus doesn't get angry very often in the scriptures, but this is one of the examples where he does. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And his hand was restored. But then right on the Sabbath, they disobeyed the law We're supposed to notice that tension in a passage like this. Jesus is grieved because they can't see the humanity of the situation. So listen, listen, listen. This is really important. When we approach situations that are complicated like this, okay? Yes, the scriptures say, don't administer aid. Don't, unless there's potential of loss of life. But then there's a person in the room and the giver of life and the healer is in the room. What are we supposed to do with this tension? Jesus applies this principle. Kingdom answers prioritize people over programs. Kingdom answers prioritize people over programs. And Jesus does it all over the place. Frankly, that's why they killed him. Because they couldn't handle a framework that fiddled with their perspective of the scriptures and all over the place, he's just messing with their perspective of the text. So what's going on here is the most dehumanizing thing that the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day are doing is they're making the Sabbath, this gift from God, this deposit of hope and life and restoration in the middle of the week of, of those who've observed the Sabbath. They're taking this gift and they're, they're weaponizing it. They're weaponizing it, and they're making it heavy and hard for the people to follow. And it's no longer life-giving. It's actually condemning. It, it fills their hearts with fear and trepidation. Am I going to get it wrong? Am I going to get it wrong? But what about us? What's the most dehumanizing thing we do with Sabbath in our day and age? So I want to apply this principle that I pointed out in the beginning of the message that Jesus is more concerned with teaching us how to think than he is with teaching us what to think. And ironically, I'm going to recommend that you keep the Sabbath from a passage where Jesus breaks the Sabbath. Because if you take the human element and you apply the principle of the kingdom to it, the most dehumanizing thing we do in our day with Sabbath is we just don't take Sabbath well. We're, we live in a culture that's go, 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 connected all the time. We submit ourselves to the, to the pace of life that's just ferocious. And it's never ending. And we rise up every day and we, we drink more coffee and we just keep after it and we keep after it. And God has given us a gift, a gift deposited in our week to remind us that this is not how humanity was supposed to live. And this is not how humanity will always live. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be shalom and there will be peace. And we need a weekly reminder 
every week that the world's going to keep spinning with or without me. So, so I'm going to recommend that maybe you observe Sabbath a little bit differently. And, and maybe in a unique way. Because Sabbath is about rebellion. <gasps> it's about saying, no, I'm not going to work. You know, time is money. And I don't care. And I'm going, I'm going to unplug from the economic structures of the world and I'm going to plug in to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and I'm going to restore my soul because one day work will be effortless because we're not going to be striving. So for me, I picked up um, disc golf for a couple years ago. Thanks, Rodney, for teaching, us, teaching me gift, disc golf. And for me, disc, disc golf is Sabbath because it's completely meaningless. I mean, I am never going to make any money at it, but it's really, really important for my soul to get out there in nature, in God's creation, hang out with a good friend, and do something that doesn't move the ball down the field. It just doesn't. In fact, it's a complete waste of time. And then when I get back, when I get back from playing, the world is somehow shockingly still moving without me. That's so good for the soul. So good for the soul. Anyway, uh-oh, I'm already adding stuff to the message and I need to get to that. Anyway. All right, so there's more going on in this passage and we had a lot of ground to cover in chapter three, but Jesus gives us this principle that people over programs. But he gives us more principles to help us make decisions in real life. And move on into, cha into chapter 3. In verse 7, it says this. Jesus withdrew. And that little word withdrew, is it sort of carries this sense of seeking refuge. And when I read this, I kind of chuckled to myself and thought, you know, Jesus, if you, if you wanted to seek refuge now, if you feel the need now, all of a sudden, to seek refuge from these people who are plotting to kill you, you should have thought of that before you healed a guy in front of their faces, played right into their hand. I'm just saying, all right. But I'm not Jesus, and I clearly don't th do things the way Jesus does all the time. So what goes on right after this is he withdraws from the synagogue, and then he goes out in the open spaces, out by the sea, and the crowds and the masses are just flocking to him. Those who are sick are being healed. Those who are demon-possessed are being released from that. And his popularity is just exploding. So much so that Jesus actually says, hey, disciples, can you get a boat and make sure it's in the sea right behind me, in the Sea of Galilee right behind me, so that in case I'm about to get crushed by the sheer mass of humanity that is pressing in around me, seeking restoration and hope, I can step into the boat and push offshore so I don't get crushed. And Jesus is getting a little bit of attention because he's bringing restoration to human beings. And then he says this in verse 13. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So the interesting thing about this list of apostles that he names, and the text goes on to name them, and I'm not going to go through all those details um, but it's fun to study who they are. The interesting thing about them, though, is they're nobodies. Either they're just average, everyday fishermen, 
but they have very little significance culturally, politically. They have very little power. In fact, some of them are just complete outcasts, you know, tax collectors and fishermen. All the way down to verse 19 says, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. You know, if you're going to start a revolution, why don't you just not invite the guy that's going to betray you? I'm just saying. Again, Jesus has a different way of approaching revolution, and that's actually what Mark wants us to see here. We don't see it necessarily at face value, but this, this picture of Jesus going up on a mountain is a revolutionary image. The mountain was the place that you planned revolution. But all throughout this chapter, there's this subtle little movement, this progression geographically and socially away from the centers of power. And we may not see it at face value, but look at what's going on. Let me just show you real quick throughout the chapter. Jesus starts the chapter in the synagogue. The synagogue represents the political and, um, and religious centers of power. We don't necessarily understand that in our day and age because in our day and age we have separation of church and state, but that's not how it was back then. There was no such thing as separation of church and state. And so the synagogue represents all power, not just religious, but political as well. And Jesus moves away from the synagogue because he's grieved by what he sees there. And he moves out to the sea. And then he moves up on a mountaintop with an unexpected crowd, and he plans his revolution with nobodies. And Mark wants, to see, wants us to see this because deposited back in that little word, and look, look again with me at verse 7, and he said, Jesus withdrew. In that little Greek word, it doesn't just mean that he sought refuge. Many scholars have identified that this specific word for withdrew actually has this sense of withdrawing from the obligations of the state, withdrawing from, the, from a position of political authority. And so deposited right there, Mark's trying to hint at us. You see? See what's going on? He goes further and further and further away from the political powers that be. All right, so who are these political powers that be, and why does he want to be so far away from them? Is he scared of them? Well, here they are. The Pharisees and the Herodians. We see that in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, who is it that's plotting against Jesus? He said, the Sab... Um, oh, sorry, verse 6. He said, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. And we don't catch this at our face value reading, but Mark's readers would have just been like, ooh, scandal. Because these guys are... are natural enemies. The Pharisees represented the, both the politically and religiously conservative party. They were about holiness and preserving the way that it should be according to the scriptures, and they're reading it like that. And then the Herodians are far on the other side of the perspective. They're the you-do-you party. They're the politically and religiously progressive party. And they're, the reason they're called Herodians is because they're in with Herod. They're like, you know, times are changing. We're under the, the regime of Rome. We should just go along with the times. Things are changing. Come on. Let's stop thinking so archaically. And the interesting thing that's going on in this passage is 
I, and I can just imagine this situation. <laughs> imagine. The Pharisees walk out of this situation in the synagogue. Jesus heals the man, and they're so furious. They go into a conference room with the Herodians, and the tensions are just thick because they're enemies. And one of them says, hey, by the way, I get it. I get it. We hate each other, but we can all agree on one thing. <laughs> we can all agree that we do not like this Jesus guy, right? And they're like, all right, yeah, all right, well, let's, let's work together. Let's get rid of him. And what Mark is trying to show us is that Jesus is not politically left, and he is not politically right. Jesus is politically king of the universe. That's Jesus' political stance. I don't know if you know this. Jesus is not politically on the left or the right. He is politically king of kings and lord of lords, and he's not interested in bolstering the Herodians, and he's not interested in bolstering the agenda of the Pharisees. And when we read this passage, we see that Jesus is attempting to show us another principle of the kingdom. And it's this. Kingdom answers prioritize people over power. It's so easy. It's so unbelievably easy to think that the solutions to the world is to just get our foot in the door with the right group of people so that we can have enough power to make change. And instead, Jesus says, Synagogue, I'm out. I'm people of power, I'm out. Fisherman, all right. Backstabber, sure. <laughs> so unexpected. The way of the kingdom is so counterintuitive. Kingdom prioritizes people over power. And this is timely for us, isn't it? The political system in our country has gotten more and more polarized, hasn't it? And it seems like they, we can't even talk to each other anymore in this country. And we've got to remember that Jesus is not on the left side or the right side. He's not blue. He's not red. He is king. And we as the people of God, I'm not, don't hear me wrong, though. I'm not saying disengage the conversation. That's not what I'm saying. We need to engage the conversation and try and pass laws that help the world and vote wisely. But what I'm saying is if we are training our minds to increasingly associate ourselves with a political party, then we are not training our minds to associate with the kingdom of God. It's just not, it's just not what Jesus is up to. And so maybe a practice that you could do to help un disconnect yourself from wanting one party to be the savior of the world is to watch a different news channel. If you watch Fox News all the time, maybe you should watch CNN. If you watch CNN all the time, maybe you need to watch a little bit of Fox. And this is a spiritual practice that can help you disconnect. And you may not agree with everything you, you see or hear, but the whole time you're saying, Lord, don't make my allegiances to this party. Help me see this situation, this particular individual, this particular voting opportunity with your eyes. And ch chances are that there's, they're both right sometimes in given situations. And we as the kingdom of God, we, in, in the kingdom of God, we can actually look behind, from a different perspective and say, oh, there's some deposits of the kingdom over here. And I'm going to vote that way in this situation. Oh, wait, 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 there's some deposits of the kingdom over here. And I'm going to vote in that situation this time. And that's the way 
the kingdom. The kingdom answers prioritizes people over power. Prioritizes people over the programs or the rules and regulations and people over power. Now look, uh, we also have, uh, where Mark continues to give us these new perspectives of the kingdom and new lenses with which we can decide um, how to walk and how to live in verse 20 and following. So look with me. It says, I don't know if I put this one on the screen or not. I think I'd know since I preached this yet a little bit ago. But <laughs> verse 2, I mean, verse 20 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Before we continue, I just want to point out, remember Mark's trying to show us what it looks like for the kingdom to unfold in real people's lives, in real time, in real space. And one of the things that looks like sometimes is your family thinks you're crazy. I'm serious. The kingdom doesn't just unfold with this beautiful, natural way all across the world, it's so categorically different from anything else that the world sees that sometimes it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, that's weird. I mean, I get that you're the savior of the world, but do you have to upset everything? And then what are you doing over here? And anyway, that's, we can move on. <laughs> that's for free. Um, verse 22, and the scribes came from Jerusalem were, were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And he goes on, and he, he basically lays out this, this argument. They're accusing him that, that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus is like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Let me just think about this for a minute. Why would Satan cast out his own minions? And he goes on to illustrate with this in verse 27. He says this, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I feel like I need to pause here, just take a little short detour, because this passage is pretty intense. And um, I don't think that Mark's intention with this passage is to to focus and, and our attention on this uh, on obsessing over what is this unforgivable sin. There's three times in the Gospels, or in three different Gospels, where this unforgivable sin, this blasphemy of the Spirit, is spoken about. But I want to acknowledge that maybe for some of you in this room, maybe this has caused a little bit of fear in your life. Have I committed this sin? Have I blasphemed the Spirit? Have I just so consistently disobeyed that somehow I'm no longer forgivable. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is, he's saying that if you, you can't give credit to Satan for the unfolding of the goodness of God, that's off limits. Don't give credit to evil for good. 
that's too far. And the reason it's too far is because you shoot yourself in the foot. If you want salvation, if you want hope, if you want restoration, if you want life, then you can't think that the giver of salvation and restoration and life is evil because you'll run away from him. You'll separate yourself from the giver of life himself. That's what Jesus is saying. I think N.T. Wright put it really helpfully when he says this about this passage. It isn't that God gets especially angry with one sin in particular. It's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-giving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you'll never give your consent to the operation. That's what's going on in this passage. And I think many pastors have comforted, comforted people who had this fear by saying something that I think bears repeating. If you think you've committed this sin, you almost certainly have not. The only way you commit this sin is you say, Jesus is scary, I never want a part of him, I want to get away from him at all costs. And then you've separated yourself from life itself. So that's what's going on in this chapter. I don't have time to go into that in more detail. If you have questions about that or if that's a concern that you have, feel free to set up an appointment this week with one of our pastors. I'm sure Larry would be glad to answer any harder parts of that. And he does that to me all the time, so I feel totally justified. No, I'm kidding. Um, so I felt like it was necessary to address, but that's not entirely what's all that's going on here. And oh my goodness, I've been, I need to move. All right, so although something else is going on here, the reality is in Jesus' day, people who are sick, people who are demon-possessed, the mentality is that they deserved it. The reason they're sick, the reason that they're deformed, or the reason that they have a demon is because they deserved it, and this was punishment from God. And so what God is doing, or what Jesus is doing, is wildly unpopular. And, and all throughout this, these, this narrative, these people are trying to understand what is going on. Why is he restoring those people? Those people don't deserve it. And deposited in this little statement, unclean spirits, which is how Mark refers to these spirits in, in verse 11, is this idea that Jesus has a different perspective about these spirits. He doesn't just call them demons. He doesn't call them followers of Satan. He calls them unclean spirits because he wants us to understand that what these spirits are doing to the human beings that are, are oppressed by them. They're creating them unclean. They're, they're making them unclean. There's an innate humanity in the way that Mark describes these spirits. But, and Jesus is trying to restore, humanize, rehumanize people as he restores them. And I just have to mention this real quick. I don't know if it may, makes sense with my point, but it's really, really fun and cool. So I'm going to mention it real quick. Um, one of the things that Jesus does here is he doesn't just say, I'm not doing it by the power of Satan. He actually says, not only am I not doing this by the power of Satan, not only am I not doing this by the power of Satan, I actually am going into Satan's house. I'm binding him up and I'm plundering him. That's what he's saying. Satan's the strong man. And I, ooh, that's so beautiful. That's so good. He is stealing the property of Satan when he casts out an unclean spirit. And he's plundering the gates of hell. I love that. So, 
Kingdom Answers, uh, I got to move ahead here, oops. Kingdom Answers prioritize people over popularity. This is a wildly po- unpopular message. And it goes on. Um, Jesus tells, or Mark tells us this story about Jesus is in this crowd and he's teaching and um, Jesus' brothers and mother are outside and they're trying to get his attention and they're saying, and then the crowd eventually passes the message up. Hey, Jesus, your, your mom and dad are, or your mom and brothers are outside. And Jesus says, who are my mother and brother? It's you who understand that the kingdom is unfolding and you want to participate in that. Look at verse 34. Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And this is also wildly unpopular. Family was everything in that culture. And Jesus is saying, you know what's more important than popularity? This super unpopular message of healing the sick and the, and the diseased. The super unpopular message of prioritizing people over even family. And he prioritizes people over popularity. And the point of all of this, as we're trying to navigate the questions of life in this world, is we need a different set of lenses. God doesn't give us an answer to every single question, nor, nor maybe could, could he. The volumes that we would need would be so, so many. <laughs> but instead, he gives us a framework with which to see and make decisions as the people of God. And this is the framework. People are the point of the plan. And when we get this right, clarity comes out. And when we approach the scriptures this way, it's, it, oh, this is really, really important. On May 12, 1787, a speech was delivered to the House of Commons in London by a, a young man named William Wilber, Wilberforce. And he advocated for the abolition of sl- the slave trade in England. His words, followed by an 18-year battle with that, those laws, eventually dismantled the slave trade in England. But not only did that speech, that four-hour speech, take that effect, that speech would later, not even 100 years later, be a foundation and, and a really significant influence on another speech and declaration that took place in January 1st, 1863, And I did this last service too. I did every time I rehearsed. But January 1st, 1863, when the President of the United States issued a declaration called the Emancipation Proclamation, where he announced that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states shall be then, thenceforth, and forever free. And those two speeches, those two documents, caused a ripple effect throughout a all the globe and has reshaped the way we think about slavery in our world today. And as Christians, it's really, really cool and really, really beautiful as modern Christians for us to say, you know what? Both of those individuals cited the scriptures and the way of God as the bedrock for why they made those decisions and why they spoke those speeches. But here's the reality. I've got to be honest. So were their, their opponents. Their opponents were citing the scriptures too. And when you approach the text, when you approach the scriptures with a what should I think about this issue, the scriptures don't condemn slavery. Do you know that? That's shocking. 
for us in our day and age because God has progressed the world so far. It, it doesn't condone it either. It just basically says, well, this is how to be a good slave owner. But if you apply the how to think principle of the scriptures, not only do the scriptures condemn slavery, it's incompatible with the way of God. This is really, really important. We can't get this wrong, church. We can't get this wrong. We can't read this text two-dimensionally. Because when we do, we show up on the wrong side of history. And we show up on the wrong side of history outside of the kingdom rather than inside of the kingdom. So imagine with me, church, that we approach the scriptures honestly and we ask the Lord, teach us to give us your eyes. Real quick, maybe there's a few different practices you can do to try and help yourself cultivate eyes of the kingdom. One would be reading the scriptures for how to think. Lectio Divina is a beautiful practice. I don't have time to get into all of that. If you have questions about that, Yvonne Beal, or Pastor Yvonne is really, really good at teaching this kind of stuff, and uh, I'd encourage you to look at resources on what that means. Watching or reading different news channels. We already talked about that. Ask God for his eyes. Maybe one that helps you see people would be to practice this. Go to the bank, get $5 out of the bank, 5 to $50, something like that, and all along the way, throughout a day, say, Lord, give me your eyes. Let me see people. Let me see someone that today you want to bless. And just ask him, what's that person going through? What's that person going through? How do you see them? And eventually, the Spirit will nudge on you and say, that's where the gift is for. And it'll be a way that you can train your soul to see people a little bit more. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to close with this song, and I want to pray, but I love the chorus of this song because it's a prayer, essentially a prayer that asks God to give us his eyes and to see the world differently. So I want to close with that as we process this message, and let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us exactly what we need for how to think about everything. Lord, give us your eyes. Teach us. We, it, some of these situations are so confusing and so hard to understand. Lord, give us your eyes and hearts for people. Let us step inside of your plan for the world. We ask in your beautiful, matchless name. Amen.